Amen and amen and amen. So how is everyone? Did you, and did you have an excess of Easter candy? No. no. God bless you. Why don't you come to my house? We have far too much. Although I, I, one of my friends bought like $30 of Oddsville Easter candy. I'm pretty sure it didn't. So, but I didn't have that much. Self-control. That's a good friend. So, Self-control. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that a good is a good friend. They literally spent $30. The glorious <laughs> sugar. Uh, uh, we stuffed over a thousand eggs for the, for, you know, the egg hunt at our church. And, uh, and, uh, Ian came back in after going to the egg hunt with this, this brown paper bag about this tall. It was literally, he couldn't get the top closed around the number of eggs and the thing. And I was just like, wow, he is risen. Um, <laughs> I tried the whole way to church on Sunday to get Ian to respond with he is risen indeed you know just like he is risen he is risen indeed that's what you're supposed to do at Eastern I was trying to teach him some some liturgy some church liturgy and he was just like I'm not going to say that dad no one says that dad <laughs> and after church he was like by the way no one said he is risen indeed today. No one. I was just like, I was just like, not true because we did it in church like two or three times where I was like, he is risen and everybody said he's risen indeed. He was like, only because you made them. <laughs> he's 10. I know. It's so much fun. But anyway, he's, but he was so mad at me because then he wanted me to turn my hotspot out of my phone so that he could watch his, something on his Kindle on the way to church. And I was like, not until you say he's risen indeed. He was like, no. <laughs> so don't you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Then why won't you say it? I don't want to. I can't explain 10-year-olds. Anyway. Really? Yeah. Hundreds of years of church like, tradition. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's what you say. Let's just do that together, okay? Since we're since we're repeating, okay? I'm gonna greet you. The Easter greeting is, "He is risen." He is risen indeed. See, isn't that nice? Isn't that? Don't you feel connected to thousands of years of of lovers of Jesus who have celebrated his resurrection? I mean, you just don't just, just, just feel that in the depth of who you are, the, the reality that, the reality. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. And I know that, like, what you need to understand is that the generation before mine, okay, that's, I know, we're going way back here, okay? But the baby boomer generation, okay, when, when they encountered church, they began to process through, uh, Liturgy, church liturgy. The, the, uh, all liturgy is is repetitive religious practice. That's all it is. Okay, first assembly of God has a liturgy. Absolutely, it may not be written down, but they absolutely have, and it is written down. Uh, I mean, on the stage, there's little slips of paper that have the liturgy written on it. Okay, you they don't hand them out. 
go to like a Lutheran church or an Anglican church, and not only is the liturgy written down, but every word the pastor is going to say that day is written in your bulletin. Uh-uh. I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. You go to the church, they will give you a bulletin. Like, I didn't know what was going on. I was at, I was there because I was standing as godfather to, you know, to uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a Lutheran, and they asked me to come and, you know, and be there. And, and, and so I got to be the godfather and make a lot of Marlon Brando jokes and put in her and just be like, make a mother, I can't refuse. And, you know, do, you know, stuff like that. All It was great. It was really fun. But anyway, so we're there. I also got to take communion with real wine, which I did not expect. You know, they're like, oh, okay, now we're going to take communion. I was like, great, take the wafer, awesome, take the thing, whoa! No, this is, this, this was part of the baptism ceremony for his daughter, was that I was taking communion for her, because I was standing as godfather. So, so, anyway... I was standing as Godfather for her, so I had to take communion for her because she couldn't do that, but she could be baptized. And and um, so I, I just did. And it was like, okay, that's not grape juice. <laughs> Used to be, but not anymore. And, <laughs> which is which is fine. I'm not, you know, whatever. Although I did next time I saw Don Gifford, I did tell him. I just, I need you to know, Pastor Don, that I had some alcohol. He was like, what? And then I explained it. He was like, I will give you this one time. He was kidding. I mean, we're, I'm probably going to be excommunicated soon. But anyway, um, or at least defrocked. Do you defrock a Pentecostal pastor? I don't know. Anyway, let's keep moving. I had to sign on the dotted line and say that I would abstain from all alcohol for the length of the time that I was an Assembly of God minister. That's one of the rules. Just fine with me. I don't, alcohol's not a part of my life, never has been, makes no difference to me whatsoever. I'm not going to agree with you that it's a sin issue because I don't think it is, but whatever. If you want me to do that, I'll do that. Fine. So, I'm just saying. <laughs> so, I don't drink, and so that was a surprise. But anyway... Um, so what was I saying? Oh, so we were there and yeah, and, and I'm standing in the Sunday morning service and the, the pastor, it's a lady, which I was cool. And she's like, just, which just different to me. You know, <laughs> she's standing in this like choir robe kind of a thing and she's doing, you know, and I was just like, Oh, awesome. You know, she was really cool. And, um, so she's going through and she's like saying these things and she's praying these prayers and all of a sudden the congregation would like say things in the middle of the service. And I was like, this is impressive that they all have this memorized. I mean, they did the Lord's Prayer. That one's easy. I had that one. But then they did something else. It was like a whole different, it was like, it was like, Father, we thank you that da-da-da-da. It was like, Father, we thank you for this blessing. Oh, I was supposed to say that? I didn't realize. You know, like, and it was just like that kind of like call and answer kind of prayer thing. Well, I didn't, finally, my friend, you know, who's supposed to be guiding me through this whole process was like, it's in your bulletin. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. I was like, hey, I feel so included now. <laughs> I was like, I just didn't think I needed a bulletin. I'm not coming back to this church. So what's the point? I was like, no, you need, it's your service folder. That's what they called it. Your service. And you have, and it has the whole liturgy written in it. 
First assembly has a liturgy, whether you realize it or not. And the liturgy is, is simple. It happens every single Sunday. You could probably tell me what it is. Okay. Open up the service. Somebody gets up. Welcome to first assembly. Blah, 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 blah. If you're a visitor, fill out a visitor card. Blah, 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 blah. Now everyone greet everyone. Yay. You know, you know, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And then we don't do that anymore, but we used to. They, during the greeting time, they would play this old timey song called Yes. <laughs> Every time. What do you mean, band? It was an organist and a pianist. I mean, that was it. And a guy that stood at the pulpit doing this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I'm dead serious. They would lead worship like this. Like they were conducting the entire church yes <laughs> my dad used to lead worship on sunday mornings like that okay so i'm dead it's the truth my dad also used to lead worship for his youth group when he was a youth pastor from the guitar oh yes he's not you know he never was a great guitar player but you know it was it was he was coming out of the Jesus People movement. If you couldn't play guitar, you weren't in love with Jesus. So, it is now. Okay. No, not really. Not true. But anyway, so. Okay, so we greet everyone, and then we do three to four songs, starting with a fast song and moving our way to a slower song. Right? Is this not what we do every single song? Okay. Now, we're Pentecostals, and we might get a little crazy. And, you know, whoa, we don't, we don't predict beforehand how many times we're going to repeat everything. Although some people do. But I don't. Because I'm just wild and crazy. I don't plan that kind of thing. Just going to go with the flow. When that's over, someone comes up and prays for the service, usually prays for the sick and asks people that are sick to step out of the aisle so the elders can anoint them with oil, according to James chapter 5. Are you with me? Okay. Then we move, then we step into offering and announcement time. Um, offering is a form of worship. Don't forget his tithe and your offering. Repeated words, repeated phrases, repeated order. These are all liturgy. All of them. It's all liturgy. Okay, then sermon time comes. The sermon is roughly the same amount of, the same, you know, length of time. There is a, uh, whether you know this or not, there is a rotation of topic that is in the minds of the people that plan the sermons every, uh, for, for all the different weeks. Okay, we go through what's called the four quadrants. I'm not going to go there. But anyway... So that we're not focusing on one thing too much, we spread, we try and do, we just did this, so now we need to move it to that, etc. I got thrown off by text from my mother. Um, all right, and then we do the altar time. The altar time can vary depending on what the emphasis of the particular service has been or whatever. And then we release with a benediction. We pray for everyone and then be kind to one another in the parking lot and out you go. Okay. That is the liturgy of this church. Okay. It's repeat repetitive religious practice and there's nothing wrong with it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. 
But see, what happened was in the baby boomer age, they began to look at the liturgies because what they were encountering when they were coming up in the faith were liturgies that had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Most of them created back in the days of Calvin and Luther, so back in the 15th, 16th century. Okay, So we're talking about... And, and they were walking through liturgies that had been created a long time before them, that they were, and, and they were getting stale and old. And the baby boomer generation really hates that people are doing this to them now, but when they came in, they changed everything to fit their own thing. Now, if you try to do that to them now, they're like, who do you think you are? Well, we think we're just like you. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. And it really bugs me every time that anybody from the baby boomer generation is like, you need to listen to the wisdom of your forebears. And I want to go, shall we go back 30 years? Because you changed everything about church. Everything. Everything about church changed in your generation. Why? Because you wanted it to. And your elders said the same thing to you that you're saying to us now. And so you better get a grip on yourself because you're quite the hypocrite. Uh, no, you did. Oh, yes, I did. And... <laughs> Not only that. Have you said this to like a person before? Many people. <laughs> I've said this in multiple settings. Stop ringing. I've said this in multiple settings to multiple people, face to face, including my father. <laughs> I'm not kidding, because like, because I know how much he changed the liturgy of this church when he came in. And when other people are coming along and saying they're starting to change the, you know, they want to change something about the liturgy, and there's some, there's, there's an, there's an, a, a feeling of uh, rejection that rises up in their heart. Well, what's wrong with the way we did it? And I want to say, and and I just look at them and say nothing except that it's not the way that we want to do it now. I'm not saying there was anything wrong with the way you did it. What I'm saying is this is a different generation and they're probably going to do things a little differently and there's nothing wrong with that. Just like there was nothing wrong with when you did it, there's nothing wrong for, some, for a new generation to do it and the generations after me are going to do the same thing. The issue is, does the gospel stay the same? Do the truths that are carried in the midst of this liturgy, because the liturgy is not, I'm, going to, I'm not going to say that because that's not true. I was about to say the liturgy is not important, but that's not true. Liturgy is extremely important. And I think throwing away the liturgy like that generation did was throwing the baby out with the bathwater in a little bit. Because what they did was they, they had a liturgy which was built for a purpose, which was to form people in spiritual practice. And spiritual practice is what makes us who we are in Christ. And they took this thing and they threw it away and they didn't replace it with anything that accomplished the same thing. For instance, who taught you to pray? Who taught you to pray? You see, there was a system in place a hundred years ago where the church taught people to pray by giving them example prayers that they could have written down, that they could read through. They were not required to pray only those prayers, but they would pray those prayers and those prayers would help them to learn how to pray. 
And the baby boomer generation came along and said, we're bored of those prayers. <whistles> Want to make up my own prayer. <laughs> Fine. Nobody said you couldn't make up your own prayer. Those prayers weren't in place to keep you from praying your own prayer. Those prayers were in place to help your prayer be formed in a way that's a little better than if it was just coming from you. A wise liturgy forms us to have a religious practice which is bigger than just our own wants, opinions, and thoughts. Okay, so now, this generation is coming up now, you guys and some of my, some of my generation, although my generation are really slow. I'm just being honest. My generation are still ticked off with their parents, even now. I'm like, you're 40 years old. Get over it. Serious. Most millennials are like, why would I be ticked off with my parents? They gave me everything. They're amazing. Just saying. Uh, they were still changing my diapers when I was 14. Why would I be mad at my mommy and daddy? In fact, I'm going to go home and live with them again. <laughs> uh, right okay so anyway i love i love it yes praise the lord see i'm not a gen x or a millennial i'm in that one little mini generation that you see on facebook talked about and a zennial or whatever you want to call it I'm from the genital generation. No. No. I mean, in a way, aren't we all? But, um. But anyway, I don't know why I went off on this, on this tangent, except that I don't think liturgy is a bad thing, and I think we should... I I uh, I gave you guys that 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 uh, liturgy a few months ago or whenever it was. That liturgy is helpful for me. I don't use it all the time. I use it especially when it's difficult to pray. When it's difficult to pray, then I will rely on ancient prayers that are wiser than me, and and then it really is a great way in to the things of God. Because I'm not relying on my own head to come up with, well, what am I going to pray with now, praying about now? Uh, I'm being given good prayers to pray. It also broadens my horizon so that I'm not just thinking my own thoughts, thinking the thoughts of people wiser than myself. So anyway, it's really good. So we're going to move on to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So if you will open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5. Okay, and we are looking at verse 6, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, there's a couple things I want to do. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> First of all, the word righteousness is a horrible word to use in this place. And let me tell you why. Well, let me demonstrate. Someone tell me what righteousness means. Come on. Okay. 
<laughs> Give me more than that, though. Um, like, elaborate. I'm spoiled. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Unspoiled. Okay. <laughs> like the hobbits were supposed to be brought back to Sauron. <laughs> Unspoiled. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> someone. Someone else. A non Lord of the Rings. Uh, uh. <laughs> Come on, righteousness. Give me a definition. Morally right or justifiable. <laughs> I was gonna say in right standing. JPQ, right, standing with God. Okay, sweet. The Greek word that's here does not mean any of those things. Oh, no. The Greek word that here does not mean moral rectitude. It does not mean upright standing. It doesn't mean it with, with right standing, in right standing with God. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. That The Greek word that's here is also translated in other places as justice. Wrong things made right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, which means Batman is blessed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I thirst for justice. <laughs> anyway, no. The idea here is wrong things made right. That's the thing. That's the desire Jesus is 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 speaking blessing over. That's the desire that Jesus said in the life of God. Remember, I know it's been weeks and weeks. Um, how dare God interrupt our teaching time? You know, but uh, but uh, but. But this word blessed means that the, the divine life exists in this place. Remember? This cooperation with the divine life exists in this place. So the cooperation with divine life exists for those who hunger and thirst for wrong things to be made right. See how that's different than righteousness? Because when I hunger and thirst for moral rectitude, that's kind of sometimes a little disgusting. The church in the United States of America has been described beautifully as a club who pursues therapeutic, moralistic deism. Three big words. Let's do, and they're, and they're, it's, first time I heard this, I about fell on the floor and just, wept because it's the truth let's just take them one at a time therapeutic what does that mean makes me feel better right something is therapeutic it makes me feel better so therapeutic moralistic what does that mean yes morality Ethical discussion. So the church is fixated on making me feel better by causing me to do things that are moral or ethical. 
And what is deism? Deism is like the belief in a god, but not like, you know, they want that perfect relationship with you. It's kind of out there, it's kind of chilling. The clock, the clockmaker god. Yeah, exactly. The god who built the universe and then left it to just run. The god who is, exists, but he doesn't care about you or about what happens or about the universe. He has a general feeling of welfare for the universe. He doesn't want the universe to wind down to nothing. But he doesn't take a personal interest in what happens inside of the universe. So what they're saying when they say that, and this is the truth, is that most of the American church is interested in giving you rules for a better life because God's not going to fix anything. Sound like... Yep. Isn't that most of the church? Rules for a better life because God's not going to fix anything? Okay. And when you... One of the reasons why we are that way is because we have translated this as hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I am hungry and thirsting to be a moral, upstanding person. Bullcrap! I'm not hungry and thirsting for that. Neither are you. You're not. First of all, morality is incredibly flexible. <laughs> it is. It's incredibly flexible. So your definition of morality is very different from mine. You could say, I'm completely moral shooting this person in the head. And I would say, but you're not because you're killing someone. You'd say, but I am, because you don't understand. You don't know my life. That's the whole point of morality, is to justify oneself. <laughs> That's all morality is about. Morality is about therapeutic. It's all about making me feel better about what I just did. I'm a moral person. I'm a good person. If I win 80% on the morality scale then I'm doing fine because I'm doing better than you. It makes me wonder what, like, like you know how Paul wrote letters to the churches in there when, when he read like, the American church? No oh, I don't even want to know. <laughs> Just me, I would weep. What, was, what would Paul's letter to the American church look like? You all suck and you're going to hell. The end. <laughs> the end. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're not worse or better than the Corinthian church or the other. And we are just like them. We love Jesus. Jesus is at work in our midst, but we have serious issues. And one of our serious issues is that we think that Je what Jesus wants is for us all to be nice people. It's not what Jesus wants. Jesus is not interested in you being a nice guy. He's interested in you being a loving person. And there's a big, big difference. Huge. Because I can be nice to someone without caring about them at all. In fact, a lot of times being nice to someone means that I do not involve myself in what is going on in their lives. A lot of times being nice to someone is, even though they're fighting with their husband, I'm going to sit here and just read my book on the train and say nothing. And I'm not saying you should say anything. I'm just saying that's what being nice is. Ignore their mess because it would embarrass them. 
Are you with me? Jesus is not interested in us being nice. Jesus is interested in us being loving. And sometimes you have to be not nice to love people. Jesus is a great example of that. When he pointed at Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You don't know whereof you speak. He was being, I'm not saying you're saying, he was being loving. He was saying, what just came out of your mouth, Pete? Not okay. Sometimes Jesus has to confront us with our stuff, and we don't like that. My daughter, whenever I call her out on her thing, she would say, You're mean! <laughs> she says that to me often. <laughs> You're mean! <laughs> I'm like, You're right. I'm mean because I want you to get to school on time. <laughs> You're mean! I don't even have to say it mean. Sometimes I do. I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I'm like, if you don't turn that thing off, I'm going to throw it out the window. Sometimes that happens. Most often it's, it's time to turn this off because we have to get ready for school. Most of the time it's that. I still get the same reaction either way. You're mean. <laughs> My daughter is nothing if not dramatic. I don't know where she gets it. <laughs> I shall go into the other room and ponder where her drama comes from. Dramatically. <laughs> Ready for my close-ups today. Um, <clears throat> am I being nice to her? No, I mean, not in her definition, I'm not. But am I loving her? Yes, I am. Absolutely. I mean, not when I tell her I'm going to throw it out the window. That's not necessarily loving her. But the other times, I am loving her because I'm choosing her good over what she thinks is good for herself. Jesus doesn't want us to be nice. What he wants is for us to be a people who hunger and thirst to see wrong things made right. He wants us to be a people who feel the injustice in the world. He wants us to be a people whose eyes are open to the place where people are being outcast, rejected, trodden upon, hurt, broken, destroyed, stolen from, killed, raped, mangled. You name it. If it's wrong and it's happening to a human or to the earth itself, dare I say it, call me a tree hugger. It's still the truth. When we see wrong things happening in the world, it is the job of the church to be not okay with that. And we need to be a people who stand and who are the voice of those who have no voice. We need to be a people who will step in the way. I'm telling, oh man, do you know about the Moravians? Anybody in here know about the Moravians? This crazy dude, his name was Count Zinzendorf. I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like my favorite man in history already. Absolutely true. Count Zinzendorf was a very wealthy member of the aristocracy. The Holy Spirit spoke to him, and he decided to leave behind all of his wealth. He bought this, I don't, know, I don't know if he bought the parcel land or if he already owned it, but he dedicated it to prayer and worship for the rest of eternity. He lived in poverty 
for the rest of his life and he because he was using all of his wealth to pay people to come to where he was and spend their lives in fasting and prayer. Okay? You can still go to that place there. There was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, fasting and prayer and worship going on in this place for over 300 years. Okay? You thought Kansas City was cool. No, this 300 years, man, they're just getting started. They're not even at 20 years yet. And he would pay, and he left his money after he died to make sure that that kept happening. Okay? After that happened for a while, shocker of all shockers, people who are spending their entire life in prayer and worship begin to hear about, from Jesus about the things that are on Jesus' heart. And they begin to get this deep, unstoppable desire to go out into the world and, tell, and preach the gospel to every person. So the, one of the first missionary movements since the time of Acts began. And these men and women would go out into the world and preach the gospel. And sometimes it was so crazy. Well, the craziest story I've ever heard is this one pair of Moravians. The Lord had spoken to them that they were supposed to go to the sugar plantations of Haiti and preach to the slaves. So they tried to talk to the slave owners. Can you, will you let us come? Will you let us preach to the slaves? Da, 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 da. No, absolutely not. Door closed. You're not going there. Forget it. So they sold themselves into slavery to go. Because as a slave, they could tell people about Jesus. That's what it looks like to hunger and thirst for wrong things to be made right goes way beyond just like, I'm going to text that number and pay $5 for whatever. I mean, that's fine. That's good. If the Lord puts it on your mind to, you know, on your heart to do that, please do that. But what I'm saying is we, we are called to do what Jesus did. And that is throw our lives into the ring for people who need something from God. To be Jesus with skin on everywhere we go, in every situation, when we see things that are not okay, that we hunger and thirst for them to be made right. Because we are citizens of a different kingdom in which none of that stuff takes place. So we're going to carry this kingdom into the midst of that darkness and we're going to watch God change the circumstance, even if it means our own death. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that the story of Jesus? But there's a promise that's inherent here. I'm going to back up just a little bit. Oh, no, I'm going to move forward just a little bit. Okay, so, we're, <laughs> so first we're looking around us and we see that evil is winning in this world. Am I wrong? Wouldn't you say there's more evil prevalent in the world than there is the kingdom? Do you think the answer to that is for the church to be holed up in its four walls and be like just living their nice pretty lives? Does that look like hunger and thirsting for anything to you? If you were stuck in your house and your plumbing didn't work and you were thirsty, would you stay in the house? 
I got plenty of bottled water. <laughs> Would you stay in the house? No. Because hunger and thirst cause people to move. I remember when my wife was pregnant with Isaac. Okay. My wife, if sleeping were an Olympic event, she would be a many-time gold medalist. I love her. And this is not, she would be sitting here going, yeah. I once saw her sleep an entire 24 hours. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. She would wake up, pee, get back in bed, go right back to sleep. Not, like, just unbroken. It's amazing. Couldn't I? I was. It was. I was. I was so in awe. I was like, I don't even know how you do that. That's incredible. I went off to. I went off to class, and then I would come back, still asleep. That's incredible. Anyway, just you should be in the Guinness Book of Records, man. Longest sleep that wasn't a coma. Rachel Hawkins. Okay, so. She likes to sleep. It's like, I'm, I'm, you know, she just enjoys sleep. I don't under, really understand. I mean, I do. I mean, when I'm tired, I want to go to sleep, sure. But then, like, I don't want to sleep the whole day. You know what I mean? I don't mind sleeping in. I, I'll sleep in. But once I wake up, like, if I wake up naturally and I'm not being, like, jolted out of my sleep, you know, wake up! Ah! Okay, I, I don't appreciate that. But if I wake up because it's, you know, I wake up. Then I'm going to get up and it's going to oh, be I a good day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes I do, but still. I, I'm not saying I don't like sleep, but just not, there's nothing compar in comparison to her love for sleep. And when she was pregnant, I woke up in the middle of the night one night. It was probably three in the morning. And I reach over and she's not in the bed. I was like, uh-oh. I, I was wondering if she was sick or something. So I just got up did the loving husband thing. And I got up to go see what was going on and she's sitting at the dining room table and she's eating. <laughs> and I was like, what are you doing? She said, I was too hungry to sleep. <laughs> I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> now, it was because she was pregnant and so like how hungry she was, it just like gone through the roof. She was starving constantly i remember we went to where did we go i think it was outback steakhouse like two or three weeks before isaac was born okay and and we 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 ate okay and i i got a 10 ounce uh steak okay i couldn't finish it i i ate i ate most of it you know maybe half of it and then i ate the potato and and uh, and and the, the that bread I love their bread that they serve. Anyway, so I was full. I was happy. Pushed my plate back. Rachel's like, "Can I have that?" <laughs> I was like, "You ate a ten ounce steak, a baked potato, a salad, soup, all the all, some of that bread. You want to finish my steak?" She was like, "I'm hungry." I was like, you know what? God bless you. Take it. Okay. Okay. Hunger causes people to move. It got my wife up out of bed. That is unbelievable. Okay. 
My house could be on fire. She would be like, wake me when it gets to the bedroom. <laughs> okay. Are the kids okay? I got them. Okay, wake me up when it gets to the bedroom. All right. But hunger drove her from, drove her from bed because hunger moves people. Thirst moves people. There have been countless riots and whole wars break out all over the world because of hungry and thirsty people. Hunger and thirst drive people. And so Jesus was saying, blessed are those who see injustice and cannot sit still about it. There's a verse, I forgot to write it down, but there's a verse in the Psalms that says that the one who closes his eyes to injustice is not going to receive the blessing of God. That God sees injustice and he's waiting for a people to step into cooperation with him to change the circumstance. And Jesus saying, you are the people who need to learn how to do that. You must be the people who care about justice in the world. And in the history of the world, can I just say this to you? I talk about evil winning and that's, that I, I, yeah, that's real. But the world is a ginormously better place right now because of the presence of Christianity over the last 2000 years. You know that medicine didn't exist like a place for people to go and get medical care did not exist until Christianity came along and began to take care of the sick. Plagues would hit cities. Everyone else would move out of town. Christians would move into town and take care of the plague victims, sometimes dying of the plague themselves and sometimes not. But it would cause the whole culture around to be like, what is wrong with these people? And they would simply say, this is what Jesus would do. Jesus wouldn't leave that person in their sickness alone and dying. We're going to try and do something. All that, when we think about forces in the world for good right now, a lot of times we kind of associate them with liberal agendas and, and, and I mean, especially in the Midwest and, you know, all of us make America great again, folks, uh, you know, that are all, you know, we think of, we think of stuff like community centers and hospitals and, and universities and, uh, libraries and schools and, and all of this kind of stuff. A lot of, there's this, you know, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but when I was growing up, especially, uh, and that was during my, I'm a conservative Republican phase, that's not where I am anymore, but I thought of all those places as kind of like liberal institutions. Bleeding heart liberals, man, I just want to punch myself in the face. I used to say stuff like that. You're just a bleeding heart liberal. Well, no, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Schools, hospitals, libraries, they're all Christian institutions. It didn't exist prior 
to Christians who said, you know what, maybe everybody should be learning a few things. You know what, maybe everybody should have access to a place where they can get health care. You know what, maybe everybody should have the same opportunity to kind of lift themselves out of despair. The problem with the problem with communism and progressivism as we see it in the over the last hundred years or so is they were trying to do it without God. See, prior to the last hundred years or so, and wonderful guys like Karl Marx, this was the purview of the church. These were the things that people who love Jesus did because people who love Jesus also love people. And guys like Nietzsche and Karl Marx and some of these others came along and said, morality does not just live with God. We, are, we can be good people without God. In fact, God gets in the way because God points back at the institutions that put them in poverty in the first place and says, those are good institutions. Things like king and country. You enjoying our little walk through history this morning? <laughs> some of you are going to totally understand what I'm saying, and some of you are like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. But that's okay. The point is, we need to be hungry and thirsting for justice. We need to be hungry and thirsting for justice. That's who Jesus wants us to be. Justice in the world, justice outside of ourselves. But also, wrong things need to be made right in here. This word goes beyond this idea. The reason I don't like the word righteousness is because we think of it as morality. And morality, all morality is, is a lack of naughty behavior. Morality doesn't deal with the heart. Morality doesn't deal with motivation. You can be the most moral person in the world and still be a horrible person on the inside. Because morality most often is done for me. I want to be seen as a moral person. Not only that, we love to use our own pride as a tool to make us more moral. Do we not? How many of you have had something said, something like this said to you? Or maybe you've said it to yourself. What if someone saw you doing that? What is that an appeal to? Is that an appeal to something, doing something because it's the right thing to do? No, that is an appeal to doing something because it's the least embarrassing thing to do. It's an appeal to my pride. You know, you don't want to lie because you might get caught in a lie. What? <laughs> that works on all the sins except pride. Because it is pride. And even though, even if I'm an extremely moral person, then I become extremely proud of my morality. And I've not been helped. I've not been helped at all. Are you with me, folks? Mm -hmm. 
This kind of righteousness, this kind of wrong things being made right, it goes beyond a lack of sinful behavior. This is the problem with our do and don't lists that we've had for generation after generation. You know my favorite one. Anybody know what my favorite one is? Don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Come on. That's my favorite one. I got it directly from my dad. And he got it from his dad. You know, Ron, don't, actually it was, you know, Ronnie, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. He said that this Sunday. Told you. He, he said something about how some girl called him Ronnie at his church. And he's like, you're not allowed to call me that here. And then some lady was like, oh, whatever you say, Ronnie. <laughs> just got super quiet. He just ignored it and moved on. Yep. <sighs> yeah. So Janet Shannon was here this Sunday. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> kind of story about his home church and like, Everybody calls him Ronnie there to this day. Still to this day, there's Ronnie. We go back to Edina, Missouri. They still call him Ronnie. Yeah. E D I N A. Edina. Is that? What? What kind of Missouri contraption is that? That's the name of the town. It's not the only Edina in the world either. But uh, but anyway, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with the girls that do. That's not a helpful. That's not helpful. You see how that doesn't fix me at all? Now, what? Somebody tell me what is the purpose? Of the of moral codes like that one, go. Come on, think. Open your mouth. Talk to me. So you don't get gum disease what is, chewing tobacco. That's a good one. <laughs> I feel like it's a little bit of like selective breeding. Oh, if she smokes or chews, and she's got to be a little bit dumb in the head, and you don't want to have any kids with them now, do you? <laughs> no. Well, hold your can. You ain't dating. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm just being honest. It popped in my mind. Wait, okay. <laughs> so, this is, the purpose of moral codes like that is to warn people away from destructive behavior. There's nothing wrong with that because you're right. Smoking and chewing and whatever that messes with your, it's bad for you. It's bad for you. Right? This is you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right? yes. Those things are bad for you. Just like having sex outside of marriage. It's bad for you. In multiple ways. Even quote unquote safe sex, which is a misnomer. My dad always used to tell me if you're gonna sin, sin safely. That's so great. <laughs> he's, he's not a Christian, so you're yeah. gonna sin, sin safely. Okay. I mean whatever, that's all right. Obviously. Sex with a condom is less risky than sex without one. But it's still not good for you. Because there's a whole lot more. And it's not just about getting somebody pregnant or getting a sexually transmitted disease. It's about 
using something amazing and powerful and beautiful that God created to dwell inside of marriage for the purposes of some other thing. I have to do my my annual IMC sex talk. Okay. You ready? Here's something you need to... You have more than eight. Uh, sometimes in public, sometimes in private. Preston? So what's my favorite metaphor for sex, Preston? My favorite metaphor for sex... Sex is like gasoline. Yep. I already knew it, too. So. You should have said it. Sex is like gasoline. This is why I say that. Okay? Because gasoline inside of an engine is what makes the engine work. It's what gives the engine power. Without gasoline, an engine will not run. Okay? Sex is the gasoline of marriage. Inside of marriage, it gives that it gives marriage power. It makes marriage work. Marriage without sex does not work. I'm just being entirely honest with you. Marriage without sex does not work. Okay? Gasoline outside of an engine is flammable and it causes cancer. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> no, it's the truth. Everything causes gasoline fumes are carcinogen. They are. Okay? Causes things to explode. It only makes a mess. Gasoline outside of an engine is just a mess and dangerous. Sex outside of marriage is just a mess and dangerous. You are playing with fire quite literally. You're going to get there's going to be an explosion, there's going to be a fire, there's going to be a problem. Inside the engine we call marriage, sex is beautiful, powerful, and necessary. Outside of the engine we call marriage, sex is destructive. This is why sex exists. It, sex exists for marriage. You've been told your whole life that marriage exists for sex. That's not true. That's not true. Marriage does not exist for sex. It's not like God was like, crap, I put this drive in them. I don't know what to do with it. Let's create this institution <laughs> where it's going to be okay. Everywhere else it's not okay, but in here it's okay because uh, we got to let them have sex or else they're going to go crazy. That is not what was going on. God, God created marriage first. God said, here is this thing, this connection that I want, and it, because it's a picture of God's relationship with man. You guys are okay. It's a picture of God's relationship with man. There is an eternal reality that is entirely non-physical that sex is a physical picture of. Here's the other thing. Sex is not permanent. After the resurrection, sex will cease to exist. No one will mourn its passing. Because the real thing that sex is a faint shadow of will be our everyday existence in reality. And that is total and complete interconnection with God and each other. Does this make sense? Everything I'm telling you is biblical. Go look in Ephesians 5. 
if I'm half of it. <laughs> the rest of it's kind of the rest of it's kind of spread out over scripture, lots of different places. Genesis one and Jesus teaching on sex and marriage, and you know multiple other places. But Ephesians five, half of it's there. I trust you, that was funny. Okay. Ephesians five, half of what I said is there. I just didn't want to give you twelve other verses. Okay. Sex is sex is temporary. It's not. It's not something that'll exist in the next stage. The age to come is that there won't be there won't be sexual relationships there. Jesus talks about that. Okay. We need to understand that the reason that there are moral codes surrounding sexual behavior is because. Sex, like anything powerful, is extremely dangerous when handled in the wrong way. And so moral codes are created around sexual behavior in order to keep you safe. Because that's what moral codes are for. That's how moral codes work. They warn you away from dangerous things. The problem is, just because something is dangerous does not mean that it's evil. Sex is not evil. It was created by God. It is encouraged by God. One of my favorite verses to write in people's wedding cards is the one that says, do not deprive one another. Except for a short period of time. And then, you know, like there has to be a clock on that thing. On your sex fast. I don't remember the verse exactly right now. I'll find it sometime. But there's the Apostle Paul literally tells married couples, you need to be having sex on a regular basis. Because the Apostle Paul understood that the engine of marriage doesn't run without it. He got it. He, he understood. Are you thoroughly, are you thoroughly embarrassed? No. What? Just being married and constantly. Oh, I have it tattooed right here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, babe. Just saying. It's biblical. <laughs> There's also like a tally mark of the days. <laughs> Erasable pen. <laughs> a sharpie. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> don't deprive one another it's right here I mean it may not be a bad idea to get that tattooed somewhere but <laughs> so moral codes are fine because they warn us away from dangerous things. They they just make us aware that there that there is danger in the world. But it doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us like Jesus. Our real our our pursuit is not that we would be in line with some moral code. That's never our pursuit. Because the law can only ever bring us to zero. Okay, if you think of if you think of, you know, every sin I commit takes me into the negative. Right? 
All the law can do is keep you from sinning. It can't make you righteous. Because Jesus isn't nearly as interested in the things he doesn't want you to do as he is interested in the things that he does want you to do. Are there things he doesn't want you to do? Yes, there are. But he's way more interested in the things that he does want you to do because if you're busy doing those things, all the stuff you're not supposed to do, you're not going to be doing those, by the way. And even more interested, I don't know how I was going to end that sentence. He is even more, uh, uh, okay, Jesus is interested in the things that he wants you to do, but he's even more interested in who you are. The why behind the things that he wants you to do. The relationship that you have with the things that he wants you to do. The, the things that you care about. What's your value system? What's important to you? Jesus is the most interested about that. Do you want to know how I know that? Let me ask you, how do I know that? Think for a minute. How do I know that Jesus is more interested in what's going on in the inside of your heart than he is what's going on in the outside of you? How do I know? Obviously, it's going to be in the Bible. Find it. Think. It's achingly simple. What? are the first and greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment? What are they? No, not the Ten Commandments. Okay, now answer me this question. Where do those two things take place? Jesus is more interested in your value system than he is in how your value system is, is, comes out of you. Does this make sense? Jesus says if your heart's in the right place, the rest of you will be in the right place. If you really love, if you really love God, you'll act like you do. If you really love people, you'll act like you do. And Jesus is way more interested in what's going on in the internal structure of your value system. What's truly important to you? Because I'm telling you right now, if the thing that's truly important to you is you, then whatever kind of moral code you're following, you're doing it for you. And it is therefore sin. Everybody okay? <laughs> Talk to me. This is making sense to you. I agree, Lord. <laughs> Thank you.
I'm not going to say anything else until you guys start talking. I'm not turning my hotspot on until you say he's risen indeed. <laughs> Come on, think out loud with me. What does this mean? Where are you at? Is this a new idea to you? Is this an old idea to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? Am I speaking English? Apparently not. Thought I was. Maybe I'm speaking in tongues. Someone interpret. Go. I was just going to say, like, what you're talking about reminds me a little bit of, like, the series the first years did earlier this year, like, Good or God. Like, um, I forget what his name is, but, yeah. Um, Good old Johnny. Yeah, and how, and, like, personally, like, sometimes, like, I have to, like, check myself and be like, am I doing this because I know I need to just because of like moral standards or I don't want like it to reflect on like me badly or like my parents badly or like people who brought me to like where I am now but and sometimes like I think of righteousness in that way like is is righteousness being a good person not necessarily like well Recently, I've been thinking of, like, righteousness as being more like Christ. But, like, growing up, I would have thought that being righteous was just being, like, a good person and being nice and being respectful. And all. So it's making sense to me. So there's mine. Should righteousness be hard? Should it be difficult? We got two no's. I guess it depends. Like I like I was gonna go, gonna go off of that a little bit, but like when you were talking about how like righteousness is equal with justice, um, like I think of it as like because for me when I try to be like moral on my own, I can't do it. But when I'm in the Word and like listen to what the Word is saying to me and like looking out like you know what He commands, then it's easier than if I'm you know just trying to be moral on my own because that obviously doesn't work as well as just. But I mean, I think it is. <laughs> oh, it definitely is. Sometimes. I I don't. Maybe you guys have never seen this, or you've not lived in this world. And if this is true, boy, I'm happy for you. But when I grew up, there was kind of this idea that if I wasn't, if it was not difficult, that it wasn't righteous. Like that if I was enjoying it, it probably wasn't okay. Has anybody kind of felt that way at, at different times? Okay, like if I'm having fun, I'm probably doing something wrong. Anybody? Yeah. You felt that way? That is the enemy. Okay, because I believe with all my heart that righteousness should be an absolute fountain of joy in the midst of our hearts. That we should enjoy becoming more like Jesus. I'm not saying every minute. There's going to be some stuff that we're like, I would really rather spend my money 
on, you know, some Apple product and give to that missionary, right? Okay. You know, so there's going to be moments where we're making decisions to die to to something that's in us, you know, to to make a sacrifice because it's the right thing to do. But there is there is a philosopher I'm not going to say his name because it's just not good, but it's spelled K-A-N-T. <laughs> okay? I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> it's hard to pronounce his name and not, not okay. it just, I just feel dirty <laughs> pronouncing his name. So, I just do. Okay? His name is Emmanuel. We'll just call him Emmanuel because that was his first name. Okay? And he said, he said this. How many of you have seen, uh, well, how many of you are, are Friends fans? I mean, I watched you like the TV show Friends. Do you remember the time when Joey, I think it was, either, it was either Joey or Ross, I don't remember who it was, it was either Joey or Ross said to Phoebe, you really did that good thing for yourself because it made you feel good. And so she was trying to come up with a way of doing something that was entirely for someone else without, and, and, that, and that did not make her feel good because then it would be a truly an altruistic thing because it was something she was doing for someone else entirely and it did not make her feel good right so the whole episode she's trying to figure out how to do that and at the end she does something that did not make her feel good but it was good for someone else and then all of a sudden something happened and it made her feel good again and she was like dang it okay that idea that doing something good that also makes you feel good is like selfish and not truly altruistic, it's not really good because it's really about you. That idea comes from this guy that I don't want to say his name. Okay, it comes from him, Emmanuel. Okay, he said that if you were doing a good deed in order to feel good about doing the good deeds, you ruined the good that you did because it was about you and not about that other person. He said it wasn't altruistic. Okay, bull crap. Joy should be an absolute fountain of joy. I mean, uh, righteousness should be a fountain of joy in the midst of our hearts. We should love doing things to please Jesus because we love Jesus. Let me ask you a question. If I was going to do something for my wife, okay, I'm going to buy her 24 long stem red roses. Okay? She loves red roses. Okay? And I show up at the front door and I ring the doorbell, which isn't possible because my doorbell's not working right now. So, but I knock on the door. Okay? And she answers the door and I say, Here you go, babe. These are for you. And she's like, Oh, I love them. They're wonderful. And I'm just like, I hated giving that to you. How would she feel? I'm so offended. Right, you would be really offended, wouldn't you? You would be like, well, I don't want them then. If you don't want to give them to me, then I don't want them. <laughs> right? If, I don't, if I'm not enjoying doing this nice thing for my wife, she doesn't want me to do it for her. Does that make sense? Right? Well, how does that make – I thought that if I enjoyed it, it was not good. No, it's the opposite. 
If you're doing something for someone and you're not enjoying it, that's what makes it not good. Not the other way around. Because nobody feels loved unless they also feel enjoyed. No one feels loved unless they also feel enjoyed. Lord told me that a few years ago and I was mad at him. Because I was talking to him about someone in particular. And I was saying, Lord, you know I love them. But I don't like them at all. And I will, I will do what you've told me to do for them. And I will, I will do my best. And I will, I will minister to them faithfully. I will do what you've called me to do for this person. But you can't ask me to like them. And the Lord said to me, they don't feel enjoyed, they won't feel loved either. And everything you've done has been a waste of time. And I said, you're a jerk and I don't like you. <laughs> I tell God that on a regular basis. Where did your daughter get it from? <laughs> <laughs> Thing is, with God, I have to be brutally honest with God. I didn't used to be. There was a day when I wasn't. There was a time in my Christian walk where I wasn't brutally honest with God, and it was because I kind of thought that I was tricking him. I didn't think that, you know, consciously. But there was some place in my heart that felt like, if God thinks that I like, you know, if God thinks that I'm cool, then uh, then he'll, he'll, he won't reject me. I was born out of my own insecurity. And one time the Lord really just kind of brought it home to me. You know that I know how much you hate this, right? Yes, I know that. And why aren't you talking to me about it? Because I didn't think you wanted me talking back to you. So really I'm blaming this on my parents. That was a joke, people. It's okay. <laughs> When, when I told my parents I didn't like what they wanted me to do, they're always like, you don't get to talk back to me. But that's not how God is. God's like, I, I know full well you don't enjoy this. But I want you to do it anyway. And it's okay for us to process our upsetness with him. It's okay for us to be like, this hurts. So I try to be incredibly as honest as I possibly can with God. I say things to God that embarrass me. I almost don't feel like I'm being honest with him unless I'm saying him, telling him things that embarrass me. And there have been many times where I've said things to God that embarrass me, and then I've been like, okay, that's only about 70% true. Because I realized I had gone beyond what was actually true about my own soul. Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have ever said something to God that then you were like, okay, maybe I was being a little dramatic right there? <laughs> Right? Good. Because I want you to be that kind of, I want you to have that kind of honesty with him. This whole closed down, oh man, I used to hear people pray and they'd be like, great and mighty God. Creator of all that exists and all that is. Oh, shut up. Stop it. Just quit. 
there was one guy in particular. He no longer goes to this church, but every time he would, like, if I would step out into the aisle for prayer on a Sunday morning, you know, I would avoid his aisle. Because when he would pray for me, he had his normal voice was, he's like from the South. And he was kind of like this, kind of like Ross Bro, like he talked like that. You know, and he was, I mean, it was almost. I mean, he, but he predates Larry by a, quite a few years. Maybe Larry was like, that's a great voice. I got to use that. But then, and when he would laugh, he'd be like, like that was just, that was this dude, okay? He was a, one of our Royal Ranger commanders. I mean, this guy was awesome. I, I love this guy. In fact, I was teaching a class when I was youth pastor here, and I saw him walk in the back door. He had moved away years ago. I saw him walk in the back door, and I was like, ah! You know, and he comes over, gives me a hug. I was like, I was like, I'm only here because of people like you, man, you know? Because he taught me the Bible, and he's just an awesome dude. But I would not let him pray for me because Mitch are like this. Okay? When he would pray for people, he would be like, God, I pray. La, 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 la. <laughs> and I was just like, who are you? What was that? Where did that come from? It was his prayer voice. Okay. And I was like, that's dumb. If you have to put a voice, I mean, sometimes I do just for fun. I speak to my children in random accents on a regular basis. I used to refer to it as random accent disorder. There's nothing I can do. I used to tell people if I was preaching at a new place, it'd be like, there's something that's going to happen during this sermon at some point where I'm going to launch off into another accent. I'm just going to tell you now. I'm not having a seizure or anything. It's just something I do. I have this disease. It's called random accent disorder. You should have have told people that. It's it's just something that happens. I mean, it's a joke. (laughs) The worst thing is that uh, if if you're amongst a lot of people who have a southern accent, and whenever you're doing a a stupid person, you go to a southern accent. Oh, no. Don't do that. Just, I do that. I've done that for years. There's a specific character that just comes out. You sound like this, you're an idiot. <laughs> so, I need to objectificate something to you. George Bush. I love George Bush. I love, I love that all of our memories of George Bush sound exactly like Ricky Bobby. <laughs> Weird. Well, because that's Will Ferrell said that's who Ricky Bobby was. He was just his his George Bush impression with just a, a little more intelligence. <laughs> it was his impression. He was admitting that that's not the real George Bush, even though it's funny. I love George W. Bush, one of my all-time favorite presidents, because he was just hysterical. Hey, hey, hey. crazy though. I think you listen to Jeb Bush. Like, he sounds like George Bush, but he's more Spanish. Yes. And it me I saw a George W. Bush uh, uh, speech the other day where he went off in Spanish. George W. Yes. I was like. <laughs> what happened there? 
Get me a taco. I knew somebody. <laughs> Anybody the the robot chicken Star Wars episodes? <laughs> Mr. President, there's only one thing you have an elevated midi chlorian level. That means I'm one of them Jedi. <laughs> and he was like, "Get me a taco." <laughs> <laughs> so he starts doing that to everybody. <laughs> and then he wakes up the next morning and he's, and he's, they're like, Mr. President, we haven't found any weapons of mass destruction. He's like, you have. He's like, no, we haven't. <laughs> right away. <laughs> Uh, what, how did we even get here? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, go. No, I don't even know. I started to explain how I got there, but I don't remember. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Anyway. Oh, we were the point is... <laughs> we haven't been called to live by a moral code. It doesn't mean moral codes are bad. It just means they're incomplete. We've been called to be like Jesus. And we've been called to joyfully... Step into the character and nature of Jesus. That this is, Jesus never once looked at a moral action and was like, I don't really feel like it. He did look at the cross and say that. Because of the cost. But Jesus never looked at acting like himself. That's our end goal. Have you ever heard the, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, love God and do what you will? Okay, I think that's Augustine, by the way, which means it was originally in Greek or Latin. I don't know what it was, but, but the idea is this. If we become a people who are ruled by our love for God and our love for each other, we don't ever need to even ask ourselves the question, am I doing, am, is what I am doing moral or immoral? Because we will live according to the internal law that is within us of love. We aren't going, we're not going to act like someone else. We're going to act like ourselves and we are people who love. Unfortunately, that's not who we are yet. That's who we're becoming. But the most beautiful Christian, the one who has been in Christ for a long time and who has been formed into the image of Christ, the thought of doing something immoral is never going to flash across their brain because it's not who they are. And everything that they do and everything that they say and everything they think is going to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. That's our end goal. Our end goal is to never have to ask another moral question again because we wouldn't do it anyway because that's not who we are. That's what we're shooting for. Jesus gave us God gave us the law to show us the, the photo negative of who we are becoming. Think of the thou shalt nots. We are to be the opposite. Thou shalt not steal. What's the opposite of stealing? Giving. 
we are to be generous people. Thou shalt not murder. We are not the takers of life, we are the givers of life. What's the opposite of covetousness? To marry somebody, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of covetousness is contentment. To covet, to be a person who has covet, coveting thoughts, is to be covetous. Right? It's a lovely adjective. What? what? To covet means to look at something someone else has and desire it, and not and not only that, but to desire it to the point where you can no longer have a relationship with that person because they have it and you don't. Do not cover covet your neighbor's house or wife. It's the only commandment that is not about an outward action that's in the Ten Commandments. Think about it. All the rest of them are outward actions except that one. That one's internal. It's the only one that is. And the one Sunday we were preaching through the Ten Commandments here, and I was preaching Thou Shalt Not Covet. I preached it both Sunday morning and Saturday night. We had Saturday night service back then. I miss Saturday night service like crazy. That was my favorite service of the week. And I was preaching, Thou shalt not covet, the night they gave me the gift of my Taylor 700 series guitar. And I was like, I no longer have to covet because this is the guitar I've always wanted. <laughs> I've been coveting this guitar. A bunch of people got together and pulled their money to buy me a $3,500 guitar. Which was amazing. I was blown away. Uh, that's a whole long story. The Lord taught me this incredible lesson through that whole thing. But, um, yeah. And that was the night they gave me the guitar. I thought that was incredibly ironic. One of the only things I coveted at the time was that guitar. Now I don't have to. The Lord gave it to me. Everybody okay? What's wrong? You having some back pain? Or... <laughs> Do it behind everyone. It's just it's so hard for me to see your head, you know. Like... No one has ever told me that ever in my life. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Just saying. <laughs> Okay, we have seven minutes. What's on your mind? I don't want to sit here in silence for seven minutes so somebody can talk. Yeah. Um, but this is back to the like sex part. Yeah. You know, because I've heard it before. But, sure. Um, I was just thinking about this when you were talking about it. Like, our body craves that, right? Yeah. So, and it's good. But yeah. at the same time, it's like when we're single, you know, mm -hmm. it's hard. Yeah, it is. You know, but why does our body crave that? Like, does that make sense? Sure. Right now, though. 
Yeah, unfortunately. Is that it, just how we were Okay, let me let me help you with something. First of all, this whole the idea of the flesh, I, I like to replace it with the word chemical or animal. Uh, and the reason I do is because we are a hybrid species. Okay, we are the only the only species that God created that is both physical and spiritual. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. Animals are only flesh. They don't have a spirit. Okay? Angels are only spirit. They don't have flesh. They have bodies, but they're not physical bodies. They're spiritual bodies. We're the only beings who are the amalgamation of spirit and flesh, which is why we are the image of God in the world. Because we are the place, the human race is the place where heaven and earth collide. That has always been our job, and it will always be our job. Okay, Heaven and earth were meant for one another. They were not meant to be separate from one another. And we are the connective tissue between heaven and earth, and this is how it's supposed to be. We are reflecting the worship and adoration of the physical world to God, and we are reflecting the love and the rulership of God to the physical world. That's our job. That's a little NT right for you right there. Okay? So we have physical bodies. The issue is, when we sinned, we strengthened our animal part, and we weakened our spiritual part. They were supposed to live in balance. They were supposed to live complementing one another. They were supposed to live in the same balance that God wanted the universe to exist in, physical and spiritual in perfect harmony with one another. Okay? That's, that was what was supposed to happen. And by the way, your mind, your will, and emotions are part of your physical being. Animals have a mind, and they have emotions, but they do not have consciousness. There is a difference. All right. Does that make sense? They're not self-conscious. They're not aware of their own existence. They just exist. They can't reflect back on the fact that they exist. Does this make sense? I know it's a deeply philosophical thought. I want you to think about it a little bit. Okay. When we sinned, what we did was we, we forsook our spiritual nature and pursued our animal nature. And we, we were never supposed to not be both. We were always meant to be both. But we set ourselves at war with ourselves, And so our physical nature, our animal or chemical nature operates now out of sync with our spiritual nature. They fight one another. The reason I call it animal or chemical is because it's not really evil, it's just mindless. It's not really evil, it's just not spiritual. We like to point at the flesh, we like to point at the chemical or the animal part of us and be like, evil. No. 
It's just not spiritual. And it doesn't want to submit to the spiritual part of who we are. Whereas our sexual nature prior to the fall would have been a beautiful expression of our spiritual nature. Now it is a broken expression of our spiritual nature. And so we pursue things that we were never meant to pursue, or we pursue things in ways we were all, that we were only meant to pursue in one way. Okay? One of the things I've tried to say before is whenever you use sex for anything other than the enhancement of marriage, the sustenance of marriage, it is like using your iPhone as a hammer. Was this designed to drive nails into a board? No, it was not. And if you try and drive nails into a board with this, bad things are going to happen to this. And guess what? You're not going to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish either. It's not going to go into the board. Am I right? Does that make sense? When we use sex to accomplish things it was never created to accomplish, we are ruining sex. And we're not accomplishing what we set out to accomplish in the first place. When you use sex to bind someone else to you, when you use sex to shore up your own insecurities about yourself, when you use sex as a medication because you feel bad, you are using sex for all the wrong reasons. You're using sex to do things it was never meant to do. The three things I mentioned, two of them are much more female than male. One of them is everybody, and that's sex makes me feel better. It doesn't really. It does for five seconds, and then afterwards you feel worse. Does that make sense? Once you're married, sex can be used for exactly what it was created to be used for. To draw you in deeper into intimate fellowship with the person that God wants you to be into in, in intimate fellowship with. To fix arguments that don't have logical fixes. There's some arguments that are just coming from the place that you're both kind of miserable and when you connect with each other on a physical level, you kind of subvert the mental and just go right to the fixing of the emotional. And guess what? In marriage, it's incredibly powerful and important. I'm just going to be honest. There's also, there's this other thing, and it's this, it's because, because sex is physical, it's also deeply emotional, both for men and for women. I know people try and say, for women, sex is emotional, for men, it's... And, and I get that, and it's probably more emotional for women than it is for men, but, but it is emotional for both. It's an emotional thing. It's created to be an emotional thing. And sometimes there is a, an emotional process that can only happen in a physical way. Uh, I, I want to stay as far away from embarrassing anybody as possible, but just... When 
a married couple is going through an incredibly grieving time. Sometimes that connection with one another can really, really help the process. It's like, I can't, I don't even know what to say about this. And so we're going to process it together physically. Does that make sense? Probably not, because none of you are married. But it will. And sex is never about you. It's always about the person you're with. If it is ever about you, you're doing it wrong. I'm not saying you're not going to have a great time. I'm saying you're there for them and they're there for you. And that's the point. Does that make sense? Yes. Did I answer your questions, Ms. Ron? Yes. Let me say this to you. I have, I think it's my job. God bless me. But I think it's my job with guys that I know well that are getting married to sit down and have three to five hour conversation about sex. Because Nobody's talked to them about what this is really about. The entire culture around them is giving them entirely wrong messages about what's supposed to happen and how it's supposed to happen and all that kind of, and they need good information. There actually are some really great books out there uh, written by Christians about sex inside of a Christian marriage. I would recommend them. Um, but... I won't talk to women about it because we need to be specific. Just, I won't get any more, I won't get any deeper into details than I have right here with a mixed audience or if I'm talking to a young lady. And this is already too detailed for some people. Some people will be like, you said the S word. <laughs> If the church isn't talking about sex, then the only person talking about sex is the world, and they don't know what it's for. Anyway, it's just my opinion. Anybody else? When I was youth pastor, we would take one or two nights at camp or at winter retreat or home missions. And I would say, you can ask me absolutely any question. And I will answer honestly. I got some fascinating questions. Awesome questions. Because <laughs> I think it's important for the church to talk frankly about sex. Especially to teenagers. This is how I feel about it. Thankfully, on the other side, we always had Mama T... She would talk to the ladies. Oh no. Oh god. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. God bless oh. their souls. Oh. 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 Oh.
I wouldn't want to be in a discussion. I mean, it's, you know, whatever. God bless her. I was just like, okay, whatever. I'm not going to. Yes, yes. What? No, she's brutally honest. Absolutely brutally honest. Yes. No, I, I'm not. I mean, I didn't want to be in on those conversations at all. But Natalie, Phil's, you know, Phil's wife, is awesome at the sex talk. And Mama T was was pretty good at it too. I gotta say. So, I had the guys covered. One time, you know that pink bubble gum? Yeah. yeah. She handed it out to all the ladies. Uh, we took the guys into another room, and we had a discussion. She handed out the pink bubble gum to, ever, to all the ladies. Didn't tell them why. Why? She didn't tell them why. <laughs> and then they went through the thing. And she says, Natalie says, has your gum lost its flavor yet? And all the ladies are like, yeah. And she's like, your first time having sex won't even last that long. <laughs> I was just like, oh, shoot. <laughs> that far. Oh, my gosh. And then I looked at Phil and I was like, is he staring a little bit too much there, buddy? Or? He was like. I think Frank talk about sex is important. I really do. I really do. So, and I'm here. I'm not being weird. If you have questions, if like whatever, talk to me. I'll turn the recording off. (laughs) (laughs) And I I mean, not right now because we're done. But like, anytime. I'm not embarrassed to talk about this. We shouldn't be. Don't ask me about pooping because I won't talk about that in Paris. I'm just kidding. 